Will you please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk chapter 3. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so the guys are going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those Bibles to you. You can keep it as our gift, and it's marked for you at Habakkuk chapter 3. We have this morning's message in Habakkuk, and then in two weeks, a final message, and we will have completed this short three-chapter review of that marvelous book. Next week, during this hour, the entirety of our worship hour will be devoted to the observance of the Lord's table. And so that's why we'll finish Habakkuk in in two weeks. When you ask someone what's going on, what's the usual and so expected response? So what's going on? Nothing much. Same old, same old. When we do that, we're quoting that great theologian, Sting. It says it's the same old thing as yesterday. We all know and have experienced that life can become familiar and therefore boring. So same old, same old. Think about the times when you're asked what's going on and your answer is not nothing much, but you immediately come out with something like we're leaving for vacation or I'm going to the doctor. I start school next week. I've got an interview. I'm going on a date. Michigan and MSU are in the Sweet 16. When any of those things are going on, it motivates us so that we're excited or apprehensive, but we're not bored. Something's going on, and it's important. But over time, even those things don't give us the rush that they once did. You've been there, done that. Even with things that used to excite you. And so those other great theologians, the eagles, said, you're losing all your highs and lows, and ain't it funny how the feeling goes away. I saw this illustrated years ago when the girls were little and our family went on a vacation in Florida and we stayed in one of those timeshare places that costs more than we could afford, but we got it cheap because we agreed to listen to the two-hour sales pitch at some point during the four-day stay. Now, Kim and I had done this once before, that, and before we had our girls. So we had done it before, and we had made plans for the trip. We knew what to expect, but we were still excited. When we got our key, and we pulled around to the parking area closest to our room at this grand resort. In fact, I think that's what it was called, the grand resort. Kim and our then five-year-old Annie ran up to our room while Lainey and I were unloading. About one minute after they left the car, we hear Annie yelling with delight from the first third floor. She runs out to the balcony and she calls to her sister, Lainey, it's beautiful. It's like a palace. You will not believe it. And as she's doing that, there's this older couple walking past. They look like they know their way well around the resort, perhaps having been there many times because they probably literally bought the sales pitch. Listening to Annie carrying on, the woman looked at me and said, that's the way it should be. It's probably no longer that for her. And to a lesser extent, it was even no longer that for me. And I'd only been there once before. It doesn't last. In all likelihood, if friends stop that couple an hour later and ask what's going on, the answer is nothing much. 
Excitement, enthusiasm, motivation are often associated with things that are new or times when we're part of something important, a campaign, a championship game, a birth, or times when we're with someone important. We meet a celebrity or a dignitary. We can tell people about it years later, even with slightly diminished glee. We're motivated, we're excited when we're part of something new, when we're part of something important, when we're with something Someone important. So with all that in mind, let me ask you to think again. Is there anything new with you? Well, from a God-centered perspective, let's remind ourselves that we're new creatures. That we're regularly given new opportunities to serve and to represent Him. That His mercies are new every morning. And that He sovereignly allows new challenges into our lives For his good purposes. In fact, in reality, there's not a single moment that is ever the same. And there's not one of those moments that any of us will ever get back. So again, anything going on? Anything new? Are you involved with anything important? The Bible says you're in the middle of spiritual war. The Bible says we're on a mission to save captives. That we're part of an entity, the church, that is the institution through which God's plan for his world is being advanced. So is anything going on? Is anything happening? And are you with anyone important? (laughs) Nothing much. You see, the problem is not that there's nothing going on. It's that we don't see enough of what's going on and we don't have the right perspective on what we do see. When we're reminded that in every moment of every day, in every trial and difficulty, in every joy and blessing, God is on his throne and we're part of his plan and he's with us all the time, that should have a transforming effect on us. And for Habakkuk, that was the case. He was reminded that he doesn't see enough and he doesn't have the right perspective on what he sees. God reminded Habakkuk in chapter 2 that he, God, is executing his plan and that everyone is part of that plan and that those who live by faith are part of it in a special way and what appears to be out of control is in fact in the control of the one who is in his holy temple and before whom all the earth should be silent in awe and calm before him. The effect that that had on Habakkuk was to move him from fear to faith. The plan that God was executing, namely that he was answering Habakkuk's prayer for justice on the violence and the injustice of his nation. God said, I'm going to use the hated Babylonians to invade them in the future. That plan was so jarring to Habakkuk that he says in verse 16 of chapter 3. My heart pounded. My lips quivered. My legs trembled. But note that despite his understandable apprehension, he says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk was initially fearful, but he was able to recover from it because he was reminded of who God is, that God is at work, and that in fact he has been at work all along. We know that he recovered because after hearing God's plans in chapters 
1 and 2, chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response. And it shows that he was moved from protesting God's plans to praising them. Verse 2 of chapter 3 that we saw last week, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. This moment, this morning, I want us to learn from Habakkuk's words what I say in the outline that is inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out. That when faced with difficulty, we must remember God and remember God's work for us in the past. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us do that. Our Father, we thank you that we are here. We thank you that we have the opportunity now to hear from you your truth, and then make application of that to our lives. So, Lord, help us now in these sacred moments to be attentive hearers. Not to just hear with the ear, but to consider, to think about, to obey what you have said. May we leave this place better, able to glorify you with our lives than we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the title of today's message you see at the top of that outline is Brimming with Confidence. I want to make clear that when I say that, it's confidence in God, not ourselves. We need not fear what's happening, whatever that may be, because God is at work. In fact, as I've told you in the past, the most often given command in the entire Bible, did you know, is do not be afraid. Fear not. We have an example of that in Isaiah 41. Do not fear. But notice why we should not fear. For because I am with you. Do not be dismayed. But why? Because I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I use the word brimming because this confidence, this trust in God is to show. It's to be displayed. And our passage today in verses 3 through 15 of Habakkuk 3 is a song that exults in the work of God, a song that was sung in worship. In fact, this passage is punctuated by three musical notations in verses 3, 9, and 13, where you see the word selah in the text or possibly in a marginal note explaining explaining that word at verse 3. I'd like to examine this song of praise to God and then see the four points of application that I have in the outline later. So we're going to bounce through these verses, see what they're telling us, and then we'll make the application toward the end. Verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Teman and Mount Paran were geographic locations in the Sinai Peninsula. This is focusing our attention on a region in the south. And we remember what happened at Sinai as God made himself known, as one has pointed out, as if he was saying, though we may be threatened by a power from the north, namely Babylon, I want you to remember something that took place one day down in the south in the Sinai Peninsula. Between Teman and Mount Paran, there was Mount Sinai. And this verse, verse 3, directs our attention back to a day when God met with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. So that's why it gives us those geographic locations. About 800 years earlier, Moses had recalled the same thing in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, the Lord came 
from Sinai. He shone forth from Mount Paran. So Habakkuk is looking to the past about 800 years regarding the work of God in the life of his people when with a mighty hand God delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He made himself known to them as their personal Savior and God, and he gave them his word, and he established them as a nation. The first word in verse number three is God. And the Hebrew name that's translated God there is Elohim. Now, Elohim is a name that emphasizes the power of God. He's the creator God. One has pointed out that the word Elohim is generally plural. In ancient times, kings never referred to themselves in the singular as I. They always referred to themselves as we, because whatever I'm doing, we're doing. And throughout the word of God, the name Elohim appears in the plural. It's sometimes called the plural of majesty. But here, it's singular. Habakkuk is making a point. Babylon may be marching under the directions of their false gods, They may worship many gods, but understand that we serve the only God there is. He's the God who created the heaven and the earth. He's the God who appeared in history to a group of Jews on a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. And we must never forget that he is the one we worship when we face life's difficulties. So in the midst of impending disaster, Habakkuk looks to the past for comfort. Hear this, friends. Every Christian always has a past. And it's good. Even with all the junk that may be in the past. If you're a Christian in your past, there is not only good, there is the greatest things that could ever happen to any individual if you're a Christian. Am I right about that? In the past, at some point, you came to Jesus. In the past, at some point, God used someone or someones in your life to bring you to faith in Him. In your past, if you're a Christian, God has been at work in your life. And if you're willing to think hard enough, you can see those signposts of His work. The Christian always has a past, and it's good. And the Christian always has a future, I might add. (laughs) And it's good, too. And you say, okay, the past, okay. In the future, okay, but not now, not the present. (laughs) But God is always at work in the present as well, and it is good, too. Verse 3 says, His glory covered the heavens, and His praise filled the earth. Verse 4, His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from His hand, where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him, pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. So again, Habakkuk's looking back to the past. He's finding comfort in the present because of God's work in the past. And as he does that, he's thinking about God's work in the exodus out of Egypt and what he did at Sinai and then the life of his people, the Israelites. At Sinai, God had come like an awesome thunderstorm sweeping down from the mountainous region in the south. As his glory covered the heavens, the sun and the moon appeared pale in comparison. God's shimmering glory not only filled the heavens, but His praise filled the earth. 
Now, this praise probably refers not to the response of of people, but to the reality of God's glory, God's fame. God's revelation of himself encompassed the heavens and it penetrated to the uttermost parts of the earth. And verse five reminds us of some of the instruments of God's judgment on Egypt. Plagues of various sorts, including pestilence, that is, disease. Verse 6 speaks of the earth shaking. God's presence was often accompanied in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, by earthquakes. When this passage speaks of mountains crumbling and hills collapsing, it may refer to landslides. Verse 7 refers to the tribes of Cushan and Midian who were in fear because they had heard about God's deliverance of Egypt from Israel. So these are surrounding tribes, surrounding peoples who have heard about it. And because of that, they quake in fear before the true and living God. In Exodus chapter 15, we're told of that same kind of thing where it says the nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people. And then it lists some of those people, Philistia of Edom and of Moab. Now, those three, Philistia and Edom and Moab, are places roughly along the route the Israelites took after the exodus from Egypt. And so they heard about it. They saw this caravan of two million people going and they feared. We see the same thing from Rahab. You remember the story in the book of Joshua and the story of Rahab who hid the spies of Israel for their protection? Here's why she did that. She said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. So that's what Habakkuk is referring to. He's saying when God did all of this, the nations and the peoples around them were in awe of God. And then verse 8 and following. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In in wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. In verse 8, three questions center on God's reason for doing all of this. Why did God act this way and with this mighty hand delivering his people out of bondage in Egypt? Was God showing his anger at the rivers, verse 8 asks, at the streams, at the sea? In other words, was God angry at nature? The implied answer is, is no. God's not displeased with nature. He was using nature as a tool to demonstrate his power. God had exhibited his power by the Nile River in turning it to blood, you'll remember, as one of the plagues upon Egypt. Similarly, God would smite the nations. His motive was to destroy his enemies and to deliver his people. And God was seen as a victor riding with horses and chariots in majestic power. And that's in great contrast with the Babylonians' horses 
that would eventually be stopped when Babylon fell a few decades after this. Now, I'll say something important about verse 9 a bit later. But what follows are further manifestations of God's judgment as that judgment is poured out in, in power. God's judgment in and his power in nature is seen in verses 8 through 11, where rivers and streams and sea and mountains and sun and moon are all mentioned. And then God's power in judgment is seen in verses 12 through 15. Verse 12, you thresh, thresh the nations, that is, you thresh them like wheat. Verse 13, you crushed the leader. Who was the leader? Pharaoh. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. That refers to the Lord taking his people through the Red Sea and then delivering the pursuing Egyptians to their watery grave. God's victory over Egypt's horsemen was pictured figuratively as if God himself had trampled the sea with his own horses and chariots. So what does all that mean? What does all that mean for you and me? I'd like to make four points of application from Habakkuk's song of praise to God regarding his power and his judgment that has been seen in the past. I have those for you in your outline. That when we're faced with difficulty, we should remember four things. First, that God's work is real. God's work is real. That is, the work of God that Habakkuk was remembering 800 years earlier. The work of God that we can remember, those same works of God that we can remember, thus recorded for us in Scripture, but also the works of God in our own lives in the past. All of that is real. That's a real God at work in a real world doing real things. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because Christianity is an historical religion. The truth of Christianity is based upon the historicity of all that the Bible claims actually haven't taken place. These are not made-up stories. These are not just motivational myths. These things really happened. And friend, if you are in times of difficulty, going to be lifted from your fear to faith, it's going to be because you believe what God says is really true. It really happened. I heard a story some years ago of a boy who came out of Sunday school. His dad asked him, what did you learn in Sunday school? He said, we talked about the Israelites coming out of, out of Egypt and they you know, crossed the Red Sea. And, and he said, well, tell me about it. What did, what did you learn? He said, well, they, they came out of Egypt and they were being chased by the Egyptians. And then they came up on the Red Sea and you know, they didn't know what to do to get across. And so Moses gathered all the engineers and the architects and he said, let's draw up something so that we can make a bridge to get across this thing. And then they did that and they went across. And then after they went across, they exploded the bridge so that the uh, Egyptians you know, couldn't get across. And his dad goes, is that what they told you? And the kid said, no, but you wouldn't believe what they told me. <laughs> Do you believe what God has told us? Do you believe it really happened? Do you believe it's real? You see, Christianity is an historical religion. 
Its truth is based upon these historical facts. They actually happened. They're written for our edification, for us to remember and to be strengthened by. There are people who believe that the Bible is right in what it says. It's true in what it says about spiritual matters. I'm not making this up. But when it talks about issues of science that touch upon science or touches upon history, then it may or may not be accurate. Well, listen, if the Bible can't be accurate about things that can be verified, why should you ever believe it about things that can't be? If you can lie to me once, you can lie to me twice, can you not? Your Bible is absolutely without error. God's work is real. It's historical. And that's why the Apostle Paul makes such an important issue of the resurrection and the historicity of the resurrection. There are many who say it doesn't matter whether Jesus actually physically rose from the grave. But rather what's important is the story of good triumphing over evil and those kinds of things. No, this is what the Bible says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. So friends, in times of difficulty, remember God's work in the past and remember that work is real. That work was real in the stories given in Scripture, and that work is real in your life. And so you remember what God has done, and you praise Him for it, and then you are renewed in your courage and in your confidence of what He can and will do in the present and future. God's work is real, secondly. God's work is powerful. God's work is powerful. Throughout this song that Habakkuk gives us, he's speaking of God's power. God with this mighty hand doing these things, doing what many had given up on actually happening. God had promised things to his people, but here they are languishing in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. But God always keeps his promises, and with a mighty hand he does what no one thought could be done, and he takes on the greatest human ruler on the earth And he brings them to nothing. God's work is powerful. That's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament said this about the power of God at work in his people. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, do you all see the connection there? His power is at work in us who believe. And then he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That power... That is a work in us who believe is the same power that raised Jesus. So is there anything that Jesus cannot do? Is there anything that our God cannot do in your life? Is there anything that our God cannot do in the lives of the people around you? Of course, the answer to that is no. But we need to be reminded of that, do we not? Can God change the heart of your spouse? Or have you given up? 
Can God change the heart of your child? You remember Lydia, the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 16 in your Bible? Lydia, a businesswoman from Philippi. She was the first convert to Christianity in the continent of Europe. The Apostle Paul went to Philippi. He preached the gospel there. Lydia came came to faith. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that when Lydia came to faith, I'm quoting now, God opened her heart. God opened her heart. And the phrase, opened her heart, is the same phrase used in that same chapter of the prison doors being opened so that Paul and Silas could be set free. In other words, God busted the door of her heart open. And God's power does that. God's power can open the heart of anybody, anytime. God can do anything because God's work is powerful. Remember that. Remember that from Scripture. Remember that from your own life in times of difficulty. Remember that God's work is real. Remember that God's work is powerful. Remember as well that God's work is consistent. It's consistent. That is, it's consistent with his character. Because all of this work that God does, all of this work that he did in the Israelites, all of the work that he's doing and has done in our lives, all of it's for the same reason, namely to display his character. To put it another way, to display his glory, because the word glory in verse 3 means radiance. So when we read of the glory of God, it's talking about the display of his character. Verse 4 says, his splendor is like the sunrise. God is said to dwell in light. Light's a visible illustration of the radiance of God's character. He's always associated with light. In fact, in the Old Testament, we find in Sinai, he led the people of God with a pillar of fire by night. You may remember that. It came to be known as the Shekinah, the manifest glory of God. When he met with Moses on Sinai, there was a great light display So great that as Moses descended the mountain, his face was shining after communing face to face with God. One day we will stand face to face with God. And we will see him, the Bible says, as he is. In his bright, shining, glorious character. One day we will stand face to face with God. Friends, let me just say that if this is the true and living God, and it is, then we ought to interact with him. We ought to relate to him. We ought to worship him. Consistent with that glorious character. It concerns me how flippantly we often treat God in the casual way we approach our relationship to Jesus Christ. We somehow have the idea that one day we're going to step into heaven, walk up, pat Christ on the back and say, how you doing, buddy? The Bible records for us appearances of the glorified Christ. We're going to see one of those in in just a bit and the reaction of the one who saw it. And it wasn't how you doing, buddy. Now, Just as an illustration of how flippantly we take the character of God and how it shapes our worship, it shapes our churches. 
Over this, uh, this weekend, my wife and I attended or invited to attend another church and a kids program that they had. And the kids program was telling the story of Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. Many of you know that story, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, them and the, the three friends in the fiery furnace. The name of the show that these children put on was called this, Danny and the Shacks. Danny and the Shacks. So Danny is Daniel. The Shacks are Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It's just easier to make him a a Shack as well. So clever, funny. They were uh, initially portrayed as, and, and at the beginning and end, as rock stars, Danny and the Shacks. On a stage, Danny's a rock star. He's got his backup group, the Shacks. That's a kid's thing, and uh, it's really good for kids to have fun. And so we do that here. Kids need to learn and be treated as children. So it's right for our children to have fun, and we have to structure the way we teach our children in a way that's appropriate for the age. I get all of that. We do a lot of that. At the same time, when we tell the story, we need to not sacrifice fun for truth. You see, because the name Daniel is actually important to the story. Because Daniel, do you know what the L is? It's for Elohim. And so his name means something. God is my judge. That's part of the story. Do you remember that as part of the story when they went to Babylon, they gave them Babylonian names? They changed the name to show that your God is not so great. And you're now under the power of Babylon. So for that story, now if your name's Daniel and you go by Dan or Danny, You're not trying to make a point with your name. I get that. But Daniel was, and the story of Daniel is. And somebody in the church needs to know that. Somebody writing the script needs to know that. Some years ago, uh, the musician Chris Rice uh, did a performance where it was recorded and it was sold uh, called, What If Bible Characters Were Cartoon Characters? And so they had the Flintstones and they talked about, he sang hallelujah, but then he sang hallelujah to yabba dabba Doo-ya, or Scooby, scooby dooby doo But here's the thing, do you know what hallelujah means? Hallel means praise. And Yah, Yahweh, God. Praise God. So see, friends, we don't want to teach our children to abba dabba doo And what we do in our churches and how we do it is shaping the affections of our people toward God. So it matters. It matters when churches are flippant in the way they go about what they do, whether with our children, with our teenagers, certainly with adults. And of course it's happening with adults because those children and teenagers become adults who want the same kind of entertainment. So if you're here today and you're thinking, Boy, 
when that church grows some more and has some more resources, they're going to be able to put on a show like some of these other churches can do over my dead body. You see, friends, we ain't doing it because we can't. We don't want to. We're not trying. We're not trying to put on a show. We're trying to represent God accurately in who he is. And in one of those glorified appearances that the Lord Jesus Christ made at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John was given a vision. And he says this, I saw someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze glowing in a furnace, were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So what was the reaction of John when he saw this? When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. I'll get off this in a second, but you know we live in a day where people think you're not really worshiping God unless you're jumping around and going crazy. But it seems like John was worshiping Jesus, doesn't it? Because in the presence of a holy God, that's the reaction we have. God's work is real. God's work is powerful. God's work is consistent with his character. And then lastly, God's work is faithful. It's faithful because it's consistent. That is, his character is such that he cannot lie. And so what he says he will do, what he promises as blessing, he will produce. What he promises as judgment, he will carry out. He is faithful. He is consistent because his character cannot cannot lie. And so God is faithful to the word that he gives, his promises and his warnings. I mentioned verse 9 that I would come back to that. Verse 9 is notoriously difficult to translate in Hebrew, and that's why the NIV has one translation, but I am convinced that this is the proper translation on your screen. Your bow was made bare. Do we have that for the screen? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You see that? The rods of chastisement were sworn. Sworn. That is, God had promised to bring this judgment. God promised judgment on those who oppress his people, and God delivers on what he promises. So be confident of this, says Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So friends, when we are in times of difficulty, we need to remember We need to remember that God's work is real and powerful and consistent with his character and that God's work is faithful. And what he says, he always will do. And he will do it until the day of Jesus Christ. So that means whatever is happening in your life, you don't need to and you should not take matters into your own hands. You should work. You should be active. 
You should obey all that God has told you to do. You should do all that you can in the situation in which God has placed you. But you never step out of obedience to God in order to rectify a situation that's not to your liking. Never. Because God can change that situation. And so, if your marriage is not what you want it to be, you're not allowed to step outside that marriage in disobedience to God. God says, you trust me to work through it. My work is real. My work's powerful. It's consistent. And it is faithful. Remember this, friends. The Bible says in Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? It's not that Paul, of all people who wrote that, is saying that there aren't any people against you. He's saying that, what does it matter? If God is for us, then what does it matter who's against us? Of course there are people against Paul. Of course there are people against you. Of course there are people in your life that make it difficult for you. They were in his life as well. But if God is for us, then what does it matter what everybody else does? Because everybody else is subordinate to this real, powerful, glorious, faithful God. In our difficulties, let's remember that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the song of Habakkuk, where he looked back and he remembered your work. And as a result of that, remembering you and what you do, it transformed his view of his circumstances and the things that were coming in the future. He didn't like the circumstances and he didn't like what was going to be coming. But he was reminded of who you are. Reminded that you have been at work, you are at work, and you will be at work. And so, Lord, help me to remember that. Help us as a church to remember that. Help us as individual followers of Jesus to remember that in the circumstances that you have sovereignly assigned to us. As a result of that, may we have an attitude, a perspective that yields a joy that the world cannot understand. And may we be lights then in darkness because we handle things diametrically differently than the world does, all because of you and your work in our lives. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.